This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at MedEdMedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler, coming to you from the 99th floor of the world-famous Short Coat Towers in beautiful downtown Iowa City, <laughs> where none of that is literal truth. But what is truth is that I'm joined by my talented co-host. Say hello to MD, PhD student, Aline Sanduk. Hey. And over there is rising M4, Laura Quast. Hello. And uh, we hope to be joined by a graduate of the Carver College of Medicine, Dr. John Pianta. We'll see if that happens. Uh, you know how that goes. But if you're sensing an additional presence, you're not wrong. And no, it's not presidential candidate Kamala Harris waiting to spring out of the shadows to pound you into a Joe Biden-shaped lump. It's a fellow podcaster and host of An Arm and a Leg, a podcast about the cost of healthcare in America, and journalist who has uh, whose work has appeared many times on NPR and shows like Marketplace, All Things Considered, 99% Invisible, and more. Dan Weissman, welcome to the Short Code Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So... Uh, I was happy when um, when we were able to invite invite you on the show because um, your you know your your beat is uh, healthcare costs and we once got some advice a long time ago that um, you know medical students should just learn about medicine um, they shouldn't worry so much about the business of medicine um, I I uh, how's that working out I just I <laughs> personally as an outsider. I don't think it uh, I don't think it rang as good advice, especially I think it was well intentioned. You know, you're just here to get your degree uh, in, in medicine and learn how to be, you know, doctors and keep people well. But um, I think that I think the two are intimately entwined. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, you know, having friends who are doctors, I mean, it turns out they all, you know, need to earn a living and they're earning a living in this environment, uh, you know, where it's like, well, OK, who, who's going to be my employer and what's their business model? What do they expect of me? Or am I going into practice myself or with partners? And, you know, uh, yeah, everybody, all the doctors that I know, um, have to think about, well, like, also, you know, how, how, not just how, not, I mean, one, like what's the structure of their own professional life and two, their patients are all like, dog, how much is it going to cost me? I mean, right. that's like a frequent, frequent thing. Right. And we never have a good answer for that. <laughs> I've seen right. multiple yeah. patients ask and they're like, well, uh, you'll have to talk to someone else about that. And there's like 200 yeah. other people to talk to about that. So, so yeah. you were wanting to do a show about the mysteries of healthcare costs for a while, weren't you? Yeah, well, I had just this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I was then working for other places like Marketplace and WBEZ, the Chicago's public radio station. And I was a reporter for them. And I was like, hey, this is this is a really important story. It's just, you know, it's a giant chunk of our nation's economy. And it's a, it's a kind of front burner and really hot, uh, like like burning hot issue yeah. for millions of people who are like, how do I get, I mean, one, how do I get the care that I need? Oh my God, 
you know, I'm, I, I can't, I'm going to get hit with a bill I can't afford, you know, but also like, gee whiz, my insurance premiums are really high, or I just got a $500 bill for this blood test. My doctor told me I was supposed to get routinely. Like, what is that about? And like, you know, depending on your walk in life, that can either be like a really significant annoyance, or it can be like, you know, a knock in the head. So that's a, that's a huge, I mean, to me, I was just like, this is a huge deal. And just as a professional, as a, I mean, as a professional whose job is to like serve the public, I'm like, this is a monster, monster story. And as a kind of professional who's like, we should be serving our audience so that, uh, and, and t- telling stories that people care about. I was like, this is a big opportunity right here. Um, I mean, it's super, super important. And the stories are just super, super compelling. And, and, and as a reporter who's interested in a lot of things, it also is like, oh my God, you know, like great, all like both super intimate personal stories. Cause these are our bodies here and our checkbooks to very, very personal, intimate things, um, often very under very dramatic circumstances in people's lives. And as a nerd, it's just like, oh, wow. Well, so I kind of have to understand science and economics and policy and there's a great big political debate. So yeah, I'm like, dude, this is a this is like big important story, super interesting to me. Let me add it. Mm-hmm. And my employers were like, uh, what a great idea. We love you. Uh, we hired you to do this other thing. Keep doing that thing. We'll let you know if we want to start some new project and have you do it. Uh, and you know, stay in your lane. Listen, can you uh, can you write a book about how to get your boss to tell you that they love you? Because I would love. <laughs> For that to happen. Not to pick out the one thing of the of the many great things you said. But yeah, it's cool that you got support to look into this. That's that's exciting. Well, he. I, mean, I, I, I didn't know that I had support to look into it. It was just you know nobody wanted to be mean about it. <laughs> yeah, like they were they were like, oh well, you've you've got other things to do. That's that's yeah. fantastic. You know, like yeah, yeah. like sure, yeah, go ahead, I mean, knock people, yourself people out. People bring their boss ideas all the time. Like, hey, boss, why don't we start a softball team? Yeah. yeah. It's just like, the, and the, if you're a boss, you know, you don't want to discourage people. Um, and you don't want to go making commitments on behalf of the organization that you can't really back up. Yeah. 100%. So, or that you don't know how to do. It yeah. sounds like they were like, oh, that's cute. You're excited about something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then that was it. Oh, yeah. But you're, you, yeah. you, but eventually it sounds like you, you thought, well, this is so important to me. That. Well, yeah, it, it was, I mean, it was a little, it was pretty personal actually, because I left my last job as a reporter. I was like, well, it's, you know, this isn't quite what I need to do. And I was like, oh wait, oh crap. Um, <laughs> like that job wasn't quite right for me, but I, I'm in this field that I, I mean, I knew this uh, going, that's why it was a super hard decision to leave that job. But I was like, this is, a, I mean, I'm a reporter. This is not a growth field for most people. <laughs> and, and I, I'm committed to living where I live. I live in Chicago. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, in a field like this, like you got to be ready to go where the work is if you want to work and, or if you want to work for somebody. And I was like, well, hmm, I may need a new career here. <laughs> this is, this, I don't know where the next, I don't know that the next job that's right for me is. Um, and there's a bit of a problem because there's tons of freelance work to do, but like, where's the health insurance supposed to come from? Cause my wife is the solo business person in this family already. So that's been my job. Yeah. So it was, you know, the, the dilemma was like right in front of us. And it's another way in which this is a giant story is that people make great big life decisions, you know, in order to make sure they know where their health insurance is coming from or how they're going to pay for their health care. 
And that was kind of our deal. We were like, oh, whoa, huh. And so thinking that I was going to have to train for another career, I was like, well, that could take a little while. It could be expensive. I mean, one way or another. And uh, well, what if we kind of turned that around and went into business to produce this this thing that I've been saying to employers is such a great idea to do all this time <laughs> and such a big, great, big, important story. It's a great, big opportunity. Yeah. Uh, why don't I try it out? So, and um, it was, I mean, I gave myself like a week to talk to people, to be like, uh, is this a terrible idea? Can you talk me out of it? <laughs> and people didn't talk me out of it. And, and, the, and the other thing that happened that was the big surprise was that the people I talked to, I wasn't going around looking for stories of people with horrific problems. I was talking to people I knew who were, you know, comfortable and, you know, had jobs and just, and everybody, people who were colleagues, people who were like, went to my kid's school, you know, people I just happened to know who had businesses and every single person was like, oh man, well, let me tell you my story. Yeah. Yeah. It, and we all have a story, yeah. don't we? we all have this, uh, this experience. Um, yeah. With... Yeah. Nobody's immune unless you're Bill Gates. And if you're Bill Gates, you employ a ton of people who need mm -hmm. to know where their health insurance is coming from. Yeah. It really does personally affect almost everyone. If not someone, oh you know, I mean, if not you, then definitely someone, you know, personally. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we all know people, right. Who we, all of our ups has Facebook feeds where we see our friends being like, mm -hmm. it turns out I need surgery on my jaw. Uh, here's my GoFundMe. Right. Yeah. We all, we all have that. Right. And those are the people, those are our friends who are a, in really dramatic circumstances and b, you know, kind of, are the kind of outgoing person who, can, who feels like they can do that and has friends, but there is that everybody has, but all of us live with it all the time. So you're, you get, a, as you say, you get a lot of your show topics from, uh, from your listeners, actually from even your friends and neighbors, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Someone said like, how do you find your stories? I was like, it's not about finding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not about finding. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, my neighbors, uh, were, you know, some of my very first sources sort some of the early, the first episode is really just kind of relaying like some of what I just told you of like, well, here are some of the stories people told me. Yeah. Like this is, this is an epidemic yeah. and that I've asked listeners to chime in with stories and people have responded in a huge way. And the stories are really dramatic. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can, uh, for sure relate to, um, what you're trying to do. I mean, I have my own story. Um, and, well, in, in, uh, and, and our longtime listeners will know this story because I, um, I have no problem bringing my medical history into <laughs> this podcast, but, um, you know, I was in 1995, I was hospitalized at 25, um, for mm -hmm. many weeks with a life threatening illness, which fortunately resolved. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. but in 2019 dollars, the cost of my treatment would have been, you know, more than $400,000. And, you know, I was just out of school. I had no health insurance. Yeah. Um, oh in the end, uh, Massachusetts Medicaid paid for it, but, hmm. um, I'm not certain that that option always exists anymore. Um, for people, yeah. I mean, I, in a way I kind of got lucky to get sick when I did. And also that it was such a high amount, uh, that, you know, it's, you know, I, it's, it's conceivable that, you know, you know, it could get some attention from, from the bureaucrats as opposed to, you know, if I broke my arm, mm. you know, it might've been a lot more difficult to get coverage and it, and I would have been probably just as financially destroyed by it. Right. Yeah. Right. Like just starting out $15,000 in the hole. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so it's really something yeah. I feel like a lot of people relate to. And, you know, oh, in, yeah. in the first episode, you interest, introduced us to, in your first episode, you introduced us to a guy, um, Pablo, who had had a heart yeah. attack. And I think his story is a great example of why medical learners um, who care about things like access to healthcare and keeping people alive should care about health insurance. Can you um, can you tell us? Do you, do you remember Pablo's story? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and this was this is one of those things where I was just you know just putting it out there like, hey, I'm thinking of doing this thing. And Pablo, who whose kid goes to my kid's school, we see each other on the playground. He was like, oh yeah, you know, a couple of years ago we were moving, and uh, by the end of the day, I was kind of short of breath, and it was unusual for him. It was in good shape. The next day, he called the doc, and he went in, and uh, and the doc came back after taking the EKG and was like, you you had a heart attack. We've got to admit you. Like right now, Jeez. he was like, "No, I got to get back to lunch." He's like, "No, no, you're you're getting admitted right now." <laughs> and you know, he he left the hospital a week later after like what would have been three after what was I guess three hundred thousand dollars worth of surgery and treatment, um, and he was like, "Which his insurance paid for?" And he prefaced all this by saying, "Like, you know, my wife makes less money than I do, but the insurance at her job is good." And he said, "If I hadn't had the insurance, I would not have called." Yeah. And the nurses told him he told the nurse that and the nurse was like. If you hadn't called, this would have this could have happened to you again, and you'd be dead. Wow. Yeah, and that's the that's the key right there. You know that this if the symptoms don't seem emergent enough, even if they are, yeah, uh, well, you might you well, might you might blow it off if you if you felt like you didn't have the money to go and and rack up a you know a thousand dollar emergency or, room visit, or three hundred thousand right? dollar. I mean, the emergency room bill could be anything. Right. Be thousands of dollars. I talked to a guy. A listener wrote in about a story where his son had just a wretched earache and and it was late at night and there was no place open except the emergency room and he took him to the er and you know they took his temperature they did a they they they, they gave him a couple gave him a test or two uh and they were like oh yeah you've got a really bad strep throat here's here's an antibiotic and here's a steroid to take the swelling down and the bill was three thousand dollars wow yeah yeah it's 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 and really crazy. There's no good way to know if that's a reasonable price for the service that you got, because, you know, as we've talked about a lot on the show, there's no transparency. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah. you know, in any other traditional consumer seller relationship, the consumer has the power to negotiate what they're willing to pay and they have the ability to walk away from the table. But you can't walk away from healthcare. You need healthcare to live. So it 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 doesn't work. It can't work that way. It's yeah, totally I mean, I would, I would say, I, I mean, I'm not sure that I would totally grant that, like, it's okay to treat healthcare like a consumer good. Lots of countries don't, um, and certainly lots of people would argue, like, we don't treat like fire department services as a consumer good. Yeah, we don't treat public education as a consumer good. We don't treat police services as a consumer good. Yeah, in fact, if, and, if your house catches fire and the and the fire department shows up and gave you a bill later, you'd be like, what the heck? Mm-hmm. Well, or, yeah. Or, or the fire start... department showed up and was like, well, we got to run your insurance first to make sure that you're eligible <laughs> to have your house fire put out. Right. I mean, yeah. or, you know, to see which, to see which fire department could come to you. Yeah. And if the fight, if the only fire department that can come to you with your insurance happens to be 75 miles away and very busy. Yeah. Yeah. You're so out of luck. I was yeah. Being... And you have, and you have, and you have a $50,000 deductible yeah. on their services. <laughs> I'm Canadian. So yeah. I grew up in a fair yeah. system and, and yeah. anyone who yeah. has doesn't, wouldn't accept anything else. It just doesn't make sense. I agree. Yeah. Completely. And I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I, I try not to be an advocate for any particular position, but I, but I would say like, I, I don't think everybody would concede 
that healthcare should be treated as a consumer good. But you're you're absolutely right too that if you if you make that concession or if, if someone if someone says like well okay if we agree about that then yeah you still have all these problems that none of us know what are what are bills supposed to be. Yeah. There's no way to be yeah. a, a, an inf- a truly informed consumer as yeah. with any other good or service. Yeah, agreed. The the firefighting analogies um pretty pretty amusing to me, but it's it's like you take that sort of to the next step even in my mind. It's like we're going to run your insurance and then you'll see if, you know, Ted with the with the squirt gun and yeah. and um, you know, hand pump uh, is who you get or, or not. And even then it's like, um, but is he going to show up and just pour gasoline on it? Um, we, 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 we won't yeah. know. Or cordon no, off weird... the fire or, yeah. Yeah. What, um, what are some of your favorites, other favorite stories that you've, uh, collected, Dan? <laughs> they're all, they're all my favorites, yeah, yeah. but, um, <laughs> one of, I think, I think there was one tip that I got early on where I was like, oh yeah, that's, <laughs> people are going to listen to that. And it was, and I love it. Um, a friend of mine has performed at Renaissance fairs for like 20 years and we're both old. And, um, <laughs> and when I told him I was thinking of doing this, he was like, oh yeah, well we have this thing called rescue. And so it turns out people who perform at Renaissance fairs who you can imagine, um, don't necessarily always get paid a lot. Um, and, and, you know, do things like juggle fire and walk on, on tight ropes and crap. Um, and play with swords and ride on horses, um, you know, have medical bills and, and have a hard time can have, it can be tough for them to, to know that they're going to be able to get the care they need. Yeah. And so they've organized their own kind of self-help foundation. And wow. the two really cool things about it are one, they organized it. Um, they made it, they had, they had informally been helping each other. It's just part of their tradition, um, you know, forever. But then they organized this thing about 15 years ago because they were like, oh, it shouldn't just be the people who are like most visible in our community who get help. It should be more equitable than that. So they actually organized this thing to like raise money independent of someone's particular need to then like have a pile of money that people could apply to as they needed it, whether they were like making macrame to sell in somebody's booth or, you know, selling turkey legs or, you know, going in on the fencing show. And so that was super cool. And the other thing is, they have through those fundraisers, they have paid down about half a million dollars worth of medical bills in the last bunch of years, last like five years or so. And then they've also made about $2 million worth of bills go away because, because they've taught people how to advocate for right, themselves. Right. And that's, that's really interesting because, um, the system seems to, um, somehow disincentivize advocating for ourselves it seems to me simply because we don't know how i mean we yeah we we don't have the the we don't even know who to talk to a lot of the time well and it's it presents itself as you know like i'm not used to getting a, if i get a bill from my credit card company or i get a bill from my electric company there's no there's nothing that makes me think i'm never encouraged to think like i could just call them and be like how about i pay you half for my electricity for last month <laughs> Like there's never, I never think about that. Um, and so when I get a bill from a hospital or a doctor's office, and especially like if they've already gone through my insurance, there's nothing that makes me, there's nothing to make me think off the top of my head. Like I could call them and ask them how we can work something out. 
I was I was just thinking about this because like they're um they kind of reminded me of uh the last year I you know I had my my daughter broke her arm <clears throat> and I took her to the ER and yeah. you know not only do you get four different bills <laughs> yeah yeah but but yeah that there's some capacity actually to go oh um yeah you know i'm i'm a resident this isn't anywhere near my deductible i'm still gonna have to you know pay the three thousand dollars to get her at a freaking x-ray you know yeah and, and do you remember what all the bills were for and what they like who, like who the bills were for? Like who was represented by each bill? Yeah, so it was it was interesting because there so there was a hospital system, um, and that one, if you are a resident, they they sort of hid this one like somewhere in the the fine print on on uh -huh. one of our, you know, million syllabi hiring days, whatever you want to call it. Uh -huh. um, if you just simply call them and say, "Hey, I'm a resident," they cut it in half immediately interesting um, right but that wasn't that wasn't like that wasn't printed on the top of the bill in big that, that's right right that was I the mean, part yeah. of the commercial they said real fast real low yeah yeah right. <laughs> the, the fine yeah. fine print yeah yeah um, but you found you you found that you, you were able to take advantage of that and then we also had you know so there was also there was the hospital group there was a physician group that employed mm -hmm. like you know the er doc but then there was mm -hmm. also like the radiologist Mm -hmm. And so I'm paying for these all independently and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and also, yeah, after the fact, right. I mean, it, like, it's one thing, um, you know, one of our local docs was an adventure medicine doctor and he said he was, <laughs> he, he had a, um, you know, a, a, a colleague slash patient with this awful nosebleed and it took them like they were in Nepal, I think. And it took them like a day to get to a place where they could get medical care for him. And they get there and the, there's an ENT. It's like the only hospital, you know, for, for two right. days by Jeep where there's an ENT. And right. the guy says, OK, here's what I'm going to do. Um, here's the list. I want you to go out. You know, I want you to go across the street to that stall there and buy the uh -huh. things. So I can do this surgery, you know, so oh, I can do this yeah. procedure. Hey. Wow. And and it's like now that's a kind of a converse. But it like it's weird to me how something that to our system seems so bizarre is actually like radically more transparent because you could be like, well, look, you know, they didn't have one of those. Can we can we can we get the cheaper option? <laughs> right. You know, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> So what you were talking about earlier was really interesting and kind of reminded me of two different things with the Renaissance Fair having their own kind of like group of insurance. That's mm -hmm. so Iowa has a pretty I don't know if they're like the top representative of Amish communities, but mm -hmm. there, there are a fair number of Amish people in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what those communities do. They just kind of crowdfund. Everybody pitches yeah. in a little bit if somebody in their community needs any type of health care. But then yeah. I, I started thinking about it. And realistically, that is what health insurance is supposed to be. Exactly. It just over the years became mm -hmm. a like business. a corporate business yeah. entity. Something that needs to turn that. a profit for shareholders. Right. But yeah, I so mean, that contaminates the whole idea. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, health insurance is supposed to be shared risk, shared cost type of thing. You know, sometimes you pay more when you didn't get sick and et cetera. But 
it's just interesting to me that we initially think of these things as so radical and odd, but realistically, it's just simplifying it and taking it back to what it used to be. Yeah, it, it's super interesting. I think that's literally how insurance companies in Germany developed like their modern huh. system, I think, was rooted in guilds where like people huh. of a similar profession would pool parts of their income and then pay for medical care. I mean, medical care that was at the time, like, you know, pretty and not, I don't want to say archaic, but, you know, very old fashioned. But but Basic, in principle, yeah, yeah it was uh, in, like kind of employment driven, but in a union mm -hmm. fashion. So super interesting. Yeah. You know, um, I need to take a break. I hope you can stick around to help us on the rest yeah. of the show, Dan. I do have some more questions for you, but yeah. I do need to take a break so I can tell you listeners that support for our charitable mission on the show comes from sponsorships and from the sale of t-shirts over at the shortcoat.com slash store. Have you seen the shirts, Laura? I have not. Laura, look at those shirts. John, hand, hand her some shirts. Hand her some shirts, John. Whoa, that is the coolest shirt I've ever seen. I think so. <laughs> Um, are they, are they, are they, uh, are they soft? They're actually very soft. This soft. is my preferred type of t-shirt. Which color do you like better? Heather blue or Heather black? Mm, I would personally go for the blue. I would too. Yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that shirt cured me of my acne. Thank you. Your mileage may vary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like them both. Um, but what's also true is they cost a mere $15 over at the shortcode.com slash store. And every dime we make will go to our charity of the semester the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Listeners, that semester is almost done. So if you believe as we do, uh, and as NAMI do, as NAMI does, uh, <laughs> that the stigma of mental illness needs to be eliminated, then stop listening right now. Go to the shortcode.com slash store to grab yours today, and then come back and listen, please, because Dan has more to say. And thank you for your help. Um, I, I found a few news stories this week on this topic. Um, for instance, uh, this week, President Donald Trump signed an executive order that would require insurance companies, hospitals, and doctors to give patients more info about the prices they'll pay for health care. I mean, the executive order has no real force behind it, and the details need to be uh, worked out. Um, but this is a common refrain from those seeking to lower the cost of health care, um, that transparency will lower prices overall uh, because of competition. But, and here's the thing, if the experience of Danish ready-mix cement manufacturers are anything to take into account, prices may actually rise. Have you heard about this, Whoa. Dan? No. <laughs> yes. So, uh, this, is a, 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 uh, this is something that is often cited by um, economists uh, who study this issue, um, because ready-mix ready cement, the kind that comes in uh, trucks you know, that you see with the big barrel that yeah. rotates, you know, ready mix cement um, has something in common with healthcare. They're both difficult to shop around for because you can't get them from just anyone um, mm -hmm. from anywhere. Pre-mix cement uh, sets up in a relatively short amount of time. So you have to get it from a local supplier of which there are usually relatively few. And healthcare is sort of like cement in that in many cases you get it from a hospital that's near you because you need it now. And there are few suppliers of healthcare um, that can do that, especially when doctors more often work in hospitals than they do in private practice, um, huh. often these days. So in the early nineties, the Danish government tried to improve competition by requiring cement manufacturers to publish negotiated prices with their consumers and prices went up 
by 15 to 20 percent. So it had the opposite effect of its intended. Um, the reason we think is that with public pricing, uh, now each manufacturer knew what the others were charging and they could raise their prices together without directly communicating with each other. Um, so I don't know. This is, uh, this is regular. I mean, there's some clear differences between healthcare and, and cement. Well, this is, this is an argument that like insurance companies and these companies called pharmacy benefit managers mm -hmm. make. They're like, uh, like this was a story, it was a super interesting issue. Like I, we did the story in our last season and it was actually just piggybacking off reporting that a reporter named Jenny Gold had done for Kaiser Health News, where she looked at, at obstetricians in the Bay Area and she got it, she really wrangled and she really worked and she got data and she was able to see how much people got paid in different practice groups. And an independent obstetrician in the Bay Area we get paid like $2,000 for a, a vanilla delivery and a physician working for by insurance and a physician working for Stanford medicine would get like 5,000 from Stanford medicine and a physician, an obstetrician working for the university of California hospital, we got like $8,000 hmm. for the same service. And in one case, she talked to a guy who had just sold his, was so tired of this. He sold his practice to Stanford medicine. And now Stanford was billing insurance 5,000 mm -hmm. for what he used to get 2,000 for. Wow. Um, and you know, one thing there was he had not gotten a pay raise. He just had some paperwork taken off his desk and he was less worried about negotiating with insurance. But you know, the, the upshot, what we've learned was this is because the independents were told by, you know, the insurance company, like, whatever, you don't have that much market share. I don't have to negotiate with you. You can take our plan or leave it. This is our price. Whereas Stanford Medicine had a lot more clout at the bargaining table. And they were able to be like, hey, it costs 5,000 bucks to get an obstetrician to deliver your baby here. If you don't like it, tell the people who are on your plan they can't have their babies at Stanford and see how popular your plan is. Hmm. And you know the insurance company was like, okay. And all of that stuff is secret. It took a lot of work for Jenny Gold to get that data because all of the contracts between the physicians and the insurance companies are all have all have secrecy clauses in them mm. they're all supposed to be quiet about it yeah and you know it took a lot of work to cry it loose and the and the argument by the insurance company was look man if everybody knew we were paying if, if stanford knew we were paying uc university of california eight thousand bucks they'd be like well we want eight thousand bucks we're stanford you know yeah. <laughs> and and so that i think is the that's the danish cement uh company argument right there right is um look you got sellers nobody nobody wants to be told that they're the they're the lowest paid provider, um, and if you're the if you're paying for services, you know what's your argument to somebody that they should, on the face of it, accept less than the than the company down the street. This is why I think really at the root of it all, it is really flawed to think of healthcare as something that should be dictated by the free market and by capitalism because it's not. Uh, something where the demand for the product changes based on the supply. The demand is very static. So, yeah, you can always uh, yep. choose not to build your building because it's too expensive, right? But, right. Or buy or a flat screen TV. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There is absolutely no consumer choice in whether or not they will need healthcare at some point in their life. And realistically, I would be shocked if anybody had literally never seen a doctor their whole life. There, so, are, there are people like that. I, I just really, yeah. I really do struggle <laughs> with the idea that this is a topic that should be, 
you know, uh, for profit run by corporate business interests. And it, it frustrates me to no end. Yeah. There's also the matter uh, that what drives our economy in this country uh, is ignorance and the exploitation of ignorance. And I think that's a symptom of like a bigger cultural problem that we have that like we don't want people to be informed or educated because then we can't make money off of them. And that would hurt the economy and kill jobs. That's the number. If, 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 if people stop being suckered, uh, does the economy collapse? Is that yeah, the, exactly. The and we're not commies here. We don't want to kill jobs. We don't want to put people out of work. That that would be unethical. So, I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious, but yeah. they're not wrong. Like if we made our healthcare system more efficient and you know, fair, it would kill a lot of jobs. A lot of people uh, are employed based on redundancy, unfortunately. But yeah. Yeah. The, uh, you know, I, I, I work on this season with a group called Kaiser Health News, which despite the name is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare provider. They share this, this ancestor who endowed a foundation um, and happened to start a, uh, a healthcare thing that got really big, but he was a, he like made great big ships and, and smelted aluminum and stuff. He was an industrialist. And so he left his money to this foundation, which now runs this newsroom. And the person who runs it, Elizabeth Rosenthal, former New York Times reporter, uh, the cost of healthcare is her big issue. And she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times recently saying like, yeah, this would, it would kill a ton of jobs. And the number that she got, and I forget the exact number, I went back and compared it to the number of jobs that like the bailout of the auto industry theoretically saved. Mm-hmm. And it was more. Wow. Wow. Um, a lot of those jobs would be in billing, like people yep. in, in, in physician offices and hospital offices who get paid to kind of game things out, game out the billing uh, to fight the people in the insurance company's offices who are employed to fight the people in the doctor's office. Yeah. That's, so like, this, that's a whole war. Yeah. That's the number one All the soldiers thing. would go home. Yeah. Exactly. That, I feel like that's the number one uh, cause of all this that like most economists and a- anyone looking into this, everyone seems to agree that like what's happening is the employment of like huge armies of claims adjusters on the part of the insurance mm-hmm. companies that want to keep every penny. And then, you know, huge armies of billing specialists at the hospital that are trying to get every penny. And you're exactly like you said, you're just employing soldiers that are fighting on the battlefield. But the real casualties are patients who are kind of stuck in the middle and they don't know how to navigate this dynamic. Uh, I worked with a with a family medicine physician at one point who made a really interesting comment to me that I still think about to this day. He was like, look around at everybody when you're walking in the hospital and you'll notice that all of the employees, all of these administrators, they're not really making money for the hospital. It's truly the physicians creating the revenue and all of these other people are benefiting from the physicians. And if you look at historical data, like physician incomes, things like that, they're decreasing, but yet healthcare costs as a whole are increasing so much more. So, so it's like a really interesting scapegoat that people always like point at physician, you know, income as the big demon and all of this and like, oh, the doctor's just trying to order this test to make more money off of me, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, from a patient standpoint that I couldn't understand why they feel that way. But the whole system is so backwards now. And I it's unfortunate because I don't see it getting better. It's heading in the wrong direction. And one of the things I think that goes with that also is that it's like, you know, we're as patients caught in the middle of this and we 
have have sort of deliberately had our hand tied by some of these parties. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe yeah. it's actually it's, you may correct my understanding, but I believe it's actually illegal for the um, healthcare systems to charge you, for example, a different cash price than they charge the insurance company even though the insurance company can negotiate against that later. Um, I, I don't, I, I, my impression is it's complicated and varies from state to state. And I, I'm not, uh, I don't know. I'm not in the weeds on that question enough to, uh, to comment on it. What I, what I know is that if you have insurance, right, your insurance company has negotiated something with that. If this provider's in network with that provider, and then that's you know then that that negotiation includes what the what the insurance company pays and what you pay, and if you're using your insurance with that provider, you're going to pay whatever that agreement says you're going to pay. Sounds like um, you have a the, need for a that, story. That doesn't always work to your advantage. Like the like one of the other yes. one of the other stories. I think it was the same story with use Jenny Gold's reporting in. There was a guy with a leg brace. His knee was killing him. His doctor was like, "Go down the hall, get a leg brace. Uh, here's what you get. You have the leg brace." Got it home. He liked it. He Googled it. And he found out that he could have bought it on Amazon for 150 bucks. And he was like, oh, huh, I wonder what they're going to charge me. But there'll be a little markup. And then he got, you know, the statement from his insurance. The insurance company was like, guess what? The doctor wanted, the doctor's office wanted 1400 bucks for this thing. Jeez. But we, we drove a hard bargain and we said 600, not a penny more. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you haven't paid your deductibles, so enjoy. You're only going to pay 600 bucks for this thing. <laughs> it's like it's like four, working four with times. the mob. <laughs> it's like working with the mob, working for and with the mob. Um, yeah. the, you know, this week's uh, Democratic presidential debates include a lot of discussion on health care. Did uh, anybody uh, catch the debates? No, Not I yet. haven't sat down to watch them, but I've been intentionally avoiding the news so that I wouldn't be... <gasps> Well, it's like you're treating it like Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> I did catch one thing, uh, which is that when directly asked whether or not they would abolish insurance companies, two people uh, raised their hands on this like very black and white question. And I think it was Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren and I don't remember. Bernie Sanders, I would guess. I, yeah, probably it was Bernie Sanders. But well, they were on different nights. Yeah. Actually, oh, all right. Yeah. Maybe it was Pete Buttigieg. I'm not I think, sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this whole Medicare for all thing. Um, is is I think what you know is definitely what Bernie Sanders uh, wants. It's um, it's definitely uh, what Elizabeth Warren wants, and probably others. Um, I was struck by an article in the New York Times um, recently. Uh, Sanders tweeted that uh, thirty thousand Americans a year die waiting for health care because of the cost. Um, and, uh, you know, Kaiser health news and PolitiFactor, uh, are sort of puzzled by this figure, how we came up with that number. Um, it kind of appears that the number came from a group called physicians for a national health program. Uh, and one of their founders, uh, has said that that the group got that from the Oregon health insurance, excuse me, Oregon <laughs> health insurance experiment. Potato, potato. Yeah. Well, you know, I try. Uh, a study that assigned some um, residents of Oregon Medicaid coverage by lottery and others remained without insurance. And the results seem to show that the death rates were higher among the insu- the uninsured by uh, 0.13% um, for the 27 million 
lack coverage in the U.S., that would mean about 30,000 people. It's like a reality what game show. What kind of study is that? That's <laughs> terrible. I know, right? I don't... I don't what IRB that approved is them? Unethical. Well, as... see, here's the thing. What the, what the New York Times article uh, that I read didn't go into was whether this was a, well, it couldn't have been a theoretical assignment, you know, like sort of like, let's see what happens if we had put these, but that doesn't make any sense because they're actually measuring outcomes, right? Like maybe it was done before medical before ethics, ethics was a thing. Like, woof, <laughs> that is, by the way, it was Bill de Blasio, Mayor Bill oh, de yeah, Blasio. Oh yeah, Bill de Blasio, right. Yeah. But that figure... 0.13%. It's not statistically significant, it turns out. So, uh, yeah. But, but I mean, you know, the, that, that entire thing is kind of disingenuous, right? I mean, it, there's way more impact than, you know, what can Death. outwardly, yeah, yeah, right, than mortality. Um, because... It, 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 well, you don't need that. You don't need that particular melodramatic figure to make the case that, like, uh, it's a problem. Yeah, loss of how, how, how difficult. How difficult to pay for healthcare is a problem. Yeah. People suffer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it it for it creates kind of an indentured servitude, mm -hmm. right? It's like, well, you know, you needed this cardiac catheterization so that you didn't die, um, and now you know you're on the hook to me for. Goodness, probably one hundred and fifty thousand dollars minimum. Right? So Pro, ProPublica had a story today um, about a hospital in Tennessee that makes a very big practice of suing former patients who are behind in their bills, and then it, using the courts to garnish their wages. And the woman who was profiled in the story made like twelve dollars an hour or less, and had had an incident where she needed care with the cost of which was something like $12,000, but because, and they, they'd been chasing her for years and there, the courts had said like, okay, you know, at, there were times when she had like almost no income and many times when her income was too low and the courts couldn't authorize garnishment because she didn't have enough money. It was like a legal limit to how little you can make. Um, but during those periods, the law didn't prevent the hospital from saying, well, we're just going to tack on incredible interest to that. Mm. So that currently the hospital says the, and the courts have apparently said, okay, that she owes them $33,000 or so. What we're not addressing these discussions is the underlying problem. It just seems wow. like the people who would benefit the most from fixing the system are the very ones clamoring against, you know, a liberal agenda that would fix it. And mm -hmm. they seem to have this mentality. They're like, well, I, I don't want, taxes to be raised because I might be rich tomorrow. And when I become rich, I don't want to lose all that money to a system that, you know, just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. Dan, what does, in, so, so you've done, uh, you, you know, you've done reporting the NPR way. Uh -huh. You're doing reporting now your own way, the podcast way. Mm -hmm. What have you found the podcast format adds to this conversation where we're hearing about healthcare uh, costs in the news every day. Well, I, I should say like the reporting is not different in that like I applied the same standards in terms of like, okay, how I, I'm gathering facts. Yeah. I'm verifying what I learn. I'm keeping an ethic of fairness in mind. Yeah. So all of that stuff, none of that changes at all. I happen to be doing it. I happen to be the entire organization, um, which is weird. 
Um, so there's not a, there's not an infrastructure of people watching um, you and making sure that they can. Well, I mean, I know, I mean, I, you know, when I started working on this, one of the first questions was like, can I do it all by myself or do I need an editor? And, you know, I ended up saying, I ended up deciding after making prototypes and running them by people who I, whose professional opinions I care about, I need an editor. And when I went to hire the editor and I was like, crap, now I got to raise money to hire an editor. <laughs> I was also like, well, wait, you know, if I was working at, you know, a, a, at a public radio station or a public radio newsroom, I would have an editor. I'd be one of several people who reported to that person. And that person would have a boss with whom my editor and I periodically checked in, who had the bigger strategic vision and helped us hold the bigger editorial vision in place for our projects. And so I was like, I got to hire that person too. So, I mean, I've hired the infrastructure. I've hired, I've hired up the organizational chart. Um, for yes. this for this enterprise. So in that sense, it's not it's not different. You know what what is different is um, well everything about running the business, right? Um, and in particular, I you know I got to keep the I I both can and have to at least for now keep the costs way down. I mean when I lo I looked at pitching this to bigger organizations. And, you know, what I, I mean, I thought about, I had essentially had already pitched to other organizations. And when I, when I was working for them, but when I thought about doing this project, it was another question. I was like, should I pitch this to some entity that, that publishes, you know, like a big public radio station or some other entity? And what I decided was like, well, they've already got lots of people like me, you know, who are like, I just was, you know, coming to them and being like, I, hey, I work for you and I have this great idea for this thing, you know, <laughs> why don't we do this thing? And, you know, they have their own priorities and things to do. And that if I was like, hey, but, you know, I bet, you know, Foundation XYZ would give you money to do this. Well, they'd be like, okay, that's interesting. Um, let's make sure. And, you know, then that grant needs to be big enough that everybody up the org chart from you gets their cut of it. Right. Um, I mean, this is all like the back end of my business. But I was like, Mm, you know, how lean can I run this thing and yeah. make something that's worth people listening to? That's a lot of what went into making this thing. Yeah. So in terms of the, so in, I mean, it, in terms of running the business, that's really different. It is very liberating, right? To then to to not have anybody with a total veto with a hard no. But like, I listen to my editor and I listen to our consulting managing producer. I when I have an idea, I say. You know, Whitney Henry Lester is our editor. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. And I'm like, what do you think about this? Like, I didn't, we set our, you know, our season one agenda, you know, our, our rundown for that season, the stories I was going to do, and our season two rundown together. You know, I pitched and they were like, no, I'm not convinced about this yet. Mm. So all those things, all those things are the same. It's just a smaller team. And we're, we're all, we've all agreed, you know, to do this project. I don't know if that, I, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, <laughs> another, kind of, another kind of how I, how I've approached it. Yeah, no, but another component of the question is, is, um, what can you do with a podcast that you couldn't do, um, with NPR? How did the format? With a radio, with a radio show? Well, yeah. doing it, I mean, NPR of course does podcasts too. And, you know, right. podcasting means that like when you're doing it for the radio, um, you are on the, you know, like all things considered or any show has what's called a clock because it's this, it, all things considered, right. Or morning edition are this incredible miracle 
because not only <laughs> are they covering the news on like a daily basis, filling up hours of airtime, bringing you all kinds of things, which is hard to do. They're also doing this handoff with local stations with like, okay, now there's like a break in the clock at this exact second of every hour that all things considered is on the air. There's that's when they break for the local news. Yeah. And then there, and then the person, the anchor on the local side, like is timing their little local newscast to end at the exact second that the NPR feed picks back up. And that means that everything in all things considered is timed to the second. And so, for instance, that story about the Rennies, I did that story with the Renaissance Fair performers. I did that with Planet Money first, and we ended up doing a version of it for Morning Edition. And the first day, uh, and when it ran, the first day we thought it was going to run, it didn't. And they were like, oh, it turned out uh, the brass was like, no, we need an extra 15 seconds for underwriting. So you've got to take another 15 seconds out of the story. Mm-hmm. And so we spent that day, you know, part of that day, finding another 15 seconds to strip out of the story. Yeah, without compromising so, the... Right, the yeah. Like, how, how can the story still make sense? How can it still pay off? We already thought we had cut it pretty tight to, to 340, but now it's got to be 325. Yeah. You know, it's like... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's tough. Um, I mean, it was still good. It ended up still good. We still liked it, but, like, it was, a, it was a difficult set of decisions, and it took a lot of work, right? Like, we spent a day. We, we It delayed the story a day. We spent time that day that we had planned to spend doing other things, finding those 15 seconds and making sure we were happy with them and redoing the, just the, you know, rendering the audio and all the other stuff. We did that all over again to make sure it was 325 instead of 340 podcast. I'm not, I'm not worried about that one little bit. Right. And that is, that's a tremendous amount of resources that I get back. Yeah. You can have a 15 minute show. You can have a 20 minute show. You can have a 30 minute show. It's um, equivalent. I mean, if if I'm getting close to 30 minutes, I'm worried about my relationship with, with whoever's listening and that they, I'm assuming they have a commute that might be 20 minutes or it might be 40 minutes. And if my show is 30 minutes, well, then I can't fit it into a 20 minute commute or I can't fit two shows into a 40 minute into it. You know, like I'm, I'm thinking about the person listening, Yeah, but you I'm know, not thinking about all of this machinery between me and them. Yeah. Well, I've had a wonderful, do you guys have any, any last questions or things that you want to talk to Dan about before we, uh, before we uh, close this out? I wanted to say that I listened to your episode about the pharmacy benefit oh, yeah. manager. That was a really interesting episode that I really, really did not know anything about prior to that. And, you know, I think a lot of times it's people ragging on the drug companies for making things so expensive. And that was just completely news to me can that you, there's like a whole middleman in there. Can you recap Thank that you. a little bit? Uh, there is, thank you so much, by the way. And I'm so happy that that worked for you. And it's super interesting to me, right? That you're, you're going to be a practicing doctor not that long from now. And this is news to you. Yeah, for sure. And it was news to me that basically there's a whole class of businesses called pharmacy benefit managers that act as intermediaries kind of between insurance, primarily between insurance companies and drug manufacturers, but they also have relationships with pharmacies. And they are essentially acting as middlemen to set the prices that everybody pays when they show up at the at the pharmacy counter. And they are in a position because they are in the middle of every single deal among those players to siphon money away for themselves. And they have an incentive to actually keep 
sticker prices at least as high as possible because that's what allows for them to kind of negotiate discounts and rebates that they then get control over and can become their profits. And one of the interesting things in that show that I remember you brought up or interviewed somebody about it, um, they have a huge amount of power even over the drug companies themselves because they have the ability to say this drug is going to be covered under this plan. And so everybody will, you know, I, I, that was just really eye opening. Oh yeah. Yeah. Me to me too. Thank you. Yeah. So the, the way it works, the, the mechanism is kind of that they, they say to drug companies, look, we're, we're, we're going to make one of these drugs. If there's a bunch of equivalent drugs, we're going to make one of them the preferred drug. Mm. And that one has a low copay for the people who are insured in this plan. So it's going to move a lot of units. So who's going to give us the best deal on it? And the, the, the simplest way to give them a, a really great deal, uh, meaning more money for them to deal with, is to raise your, the, the, the list price of your drug. So then you can, you know, if the list price is $100, you can give them a $90 rebate and still get $10. Whereas if your list price is, is $11, well, you can only give them a $1 rebate and, and collect your $10. That's your nut. And, and they, they'd rather have $90 than $1. I think that's a natural stopping point. Uh, that is our show. Dan Weissman is host of An Arm and a Leg, available wherever you get your podcasts. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And Aline, John, Laura, thanks for your help today, too. Thank you. That was said so genuinely. Thanks for your help today, too. (laughs) Uh, And what sort of garbage human being would I be if I didn't thank you listeners for making us part of your week and for all your questions and your supportive t-shirt and cookbook orders over at theshortcoat.com slash store. If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever fine podcasts are available. We love answering listener questions. So send your questions and comments to theshortcoats at gmail.com or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We will talk about it on the show. And hey, right now, while your podcast app is open, give us some stars and a review. Let's us know you're happy with our work and we do appreciate that. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week. 